0: Welcome to this week's serving of Oyster Stew, a mix of financial services commentary and insight. Each week, we'll discuss what is happening in the industry based on what we see as we work with regulators and clients. We hope you come away with the knowledge and tools to help you make the best decisions for your firm's future. You can learn more about Oyster Consulting and the value we can add to your firm by going to our website, www.oysterllc.com. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. Uh, Welcome to our podcast today on the compliance obligation of Reg BI. This is Buddy Doyle. I'm the chief executive officer and one of the founders of Oyster Consulting. I'm joined today by Patrick Dennis, our general counsel and head of expert witness and litigation for the firm, and Polly Cordell, also a leader in our organization. She runs our Oyster Solutions software product for Oyster Consulting. Thank you both for being here uh, and sharing your time with our listeners today.
1: Thank you, buddy. Thanks, glad to be here.
0: All right, so let's talk a little bit about the compliance obligations and some of the core things that uh, need to be covered around things that firms need to be focused on with their compliance programs.
1: One of the four obligations under Reg BI is a compliance obligation, and what it generally states is that the firm is required to have a compliance program in place to ensure. that they comply and meet all the requirements of the compliance obligation of Reg BI. That means, like with any other compliance program, that they have a policies and procedures put together to ensure, ensure their compliance, that they have figured out a way to document their compliance and, and meet this obligation and its requirements.
0: So, Polly, with Oyster Solutions, as you're building compliance programs and and amending them to comply with Reg BI or just building them in general, what are some of the things that you look for in a good, good compliance program?
2: So, ideally, when we build out a policy and process in Solutions, the software, we like to see an overview for the, the chapter, what we call a chapter, and then we like to see a policy. And that's really what your firm stands by. So you will comply by the regulation BI. Then we like to see processes. And those processes, we link to an actual workflow. And ideally, you would schedule that workflow to kick off automatically. And that workflow will enforce your policy. So it might be a testing workflow. It might be an actual process that enforces the policy itself. That way, you can't get out of alignment with your actual policy.
0: So it sounds like a classic kind of three line of defense approach of operational controls. You need to look at how uh, your team is uh, is is building their controls and are there systematic controls that prevent issues? Uh, are there supervisory controls that monitor the activity on a uh, routine basis uh, to make sure that you're registered representatives or following your policies and procedures, it's still hard not to call them financial advisors uh, after all this time. And to have good oversight into that is from a surveillance perspective to make sure the supervisors are doing what they need to do every day. And then the testing controls, the assurance uh, that goes along with it are all sort of core components when I'm thinking of a, a compliance program I think when we're when we're looking at some of the core issues that, that come up in Reg B I around conflicts of interest, there are some specific policies that, that firms ought to be focused on. Polly, would you like to talk a little bit about maybe some of the the key things that you need to make sure you have really good policies around?
2: Well sure. I mean Anytime that you have a conflict that you can't eliminate and establish a policy that will just eliminate that conflict entirely, such as sales uh, contests. If you aren't going to, you know, eliminate that, you've got a problem already. So your policy should be to eliminate sales contests. That's an easy one. If you have a conflict you can't completely eliminate, then you're going to have to mitigate it. Now, what we do in the software is we give you a dashboard where you can see the conflict score, and then you can see your mitigating control score and compare those two visually and make a decision whether you want to improve the control that that mitigates that conflict, and ultimately put workflows in place that
0: can also help to control that. Okay, and Patrick, are there specific things that you ought to be looking out for?
1: In terms of conflicts of interest, I think it's, it's things that you need to understand or Go through an inventory of all of your relationships, all of the things that your firm does, including fees and everything else that gives you a complete inventory of all of the potential conflicts. Once you've figured out all of those, and it can be fairly significant, I mean, it can be a fairly elaborate matrix, if you will, of conflicts because depending on the size of your firm, the number of outside vendors you use, the number of different um, products you offer and all of those things can be a fairly elaborate. So once you have figured that inventory out and put it together, you need to make sure that either you, as, as Polly mentioned, you either need to eliminate the conflict, mitigate the conflict, or in, in certain cases, disclose it and make sure that it's in your disclosure and make sure that it's in your compliance as we know business continues to be dynamic it can, your firm continues to grow continues to build relationships continues to take on new vendors new products new funds new you know all sorts of different things and to stay on top of all that and make sure that you know when you have somebody in a different department signs on or business people bring on a product or bring on something that potentially is a conflict you've got to have a fairly dynamic process to make sure that you're aware of those you've either eliminated it mitigated it or disclosed it as you're required to do
0: so i think when you're talking you mentioned products three times in that uh in that answer and as we kind of get into looking at products right i mean to me that is one of the core things that firms are doing in response to reg bi is taking a look at the, the products they have on the shelf and what the conflicts are related to those products. And we've talked since we started the firm about new product committees and, and product selection and making sure that you're not delivering the same kind of product that you're moving clients from one to the other to the other. Uh, unless there's sort of a material difference in those products. In those a material products.
1: difference or material benefit, frankly, to move them from one product to the other.
0: The reason I mentioned product
1: as often as I did is because, let's face it, that's what firms are in the business to do, is to sell products, sell the appropriate products to their clients, make sure that they are giving the client the best possible options, coming up with, with products that meet the needs. Products are always changing, all of the... Wholesalers, manufacturers, if you will, are coming up with new products and trying to figure out ways to to meet needs of clients better, more efficiently, more effectively, um, at lower fees, all of those things. So this is one of the areas that comes in often, and it is one of the things that most firms that I'm aware of, and I, you know, years and years ago sat on new product committees and sat through long presentations about products and things like that, but that's one of the things that differentiates one firm from the other and and I think is one of the things that registered reps try and sell is the advantages they have with certain products over other firms. So that's an area that I think is, is one of the things that folks need to pay very close attention to in terms of the compliance program around the new products, the disclosure, the mitigation, however they're going to deal with potentially a conflict and how are we going to deal with it.
0: And I I think when you're looking at products and product selection and product uh, due diligence, that's certainly a key component to focus on as you're building out your compliance program. Another component that I think you really have to focus on is how you talk about those products publicly and, and not publicly, quite frankly, but I think that there is going to be an awful lot of work for the people in your organization that approve advertising and marketing, given that, again, as I mentioned earlier, there's sort of this go-to default, you're out of compliance if you use the term financial advisor for a, a Series 7 registered rep or Series 6 registered rep who isn't an investment advisory representative. And so... I think that firms need to make sure as you're thinking about changing every business card, every station, need to make sure as you're thinking about changing every business card, every stationery, every piece of paper that you have, or or website or LinkedIn page that you have that refers to a specific title that might be changing. um, That's an awful lot of volume to take a look at. And while you're looking at those, marketing pieces Polly. do you think you have to look at other things as well
2: well i think you're going to have to look at your people and educating them this is that's a big change for them and how they refer to themselves and how they talk to their clients and i think they're going to need to really be educated and trained up on this change and how they approach not only their sales but their clients as well
0: yeah and i think after all this time where we're you know change is really hard. right? Every time you make a change, is it's it's as hard as the last time you made a change. And old habits die hard. That ought to be a saying. Have to take a look at. And it seems like at, at this point in time, uh, registered reps need to be very careful to document the rationale for recommendations that they're making. And probably specifically and most uh, concerning about things where fee structures might be changing for their retail clients. Uh, Is there any kind of advice you have, uh, Polly, for, uh, for firms looking to understand sort of the nature of fee changes that clients may be going under?
2: Well, if you go back to our care obligation podcast, there's a lot of discussion about how those discussions should work and in particular, what needs to be documented. So I think there's some good guidance in that about particularly documenting when the recommendation being made uh, could appear, not necessarily is, but could appear to be out of alignment with the investment objective or profile that you have on file. And if you don't have a piece of information in the profile, why you don't have that piece of information or why you think that doesn't apply to the recommendation that you made. I do recommend going back and listening to that
0: entire podcast. Very good. So I think that uh, another uh, fee structure change that that a lot of folks like us are talking about in the regulatory space uh, is related to rollovers and sort of a good process around rollovers. Uh, Patrick, any thoughts on on ways to document the rationale of a rollover?
1: Well. I- Sure. I think the things you have to consider in a rollover is why is it being done? What is the purpose of it? What is the objective? Why roll it over? Why roll over? You know, as happens often when folks go from one employer to another, they have a 401k sitting someplace and they need to often want to roll it over into an IRA so they have control over the investments as opposed to the investments that may have been more dictated by the employer. So, but the challenge is, is to make sure that you document the un, the reasons for the rollover other than just another product to sell or another account to open, but the reasons that it's being done, why it makes sense for the client, why it makes sense for the firm to put the person in this IRA rollover that happens all the time. I mean, it's a a fact these days that, you know, people don't go with one employer and stay there for 40 years, get their gold watch and walk out the door. The latest things that I've read is, um, people move at least seven times in their career from one employer to another, and that's an opportunity for a rollover in each one of those. But you have to make sure that you document and really understand the reasons for the rollover, what's the advantages to the client, why it makes sense to do that rather than just leave it in the 401k and a lot of it is going to be in the analysis of the investments and the investment objectives both the investments in the 401k and the investment objectives of the of the individual in making the decision about those rollovers
2: and i think there's a lot of energy around rollovers in the now defunct dol rule so some firms may have gone through some analysis back then i know that we did a lot of work around it at oyster and so we're able to leverage some of that work and help our clients out there.
0: And certainly the firms we worked with on DOL fiduciary rule, we are leveraging the risk assessments that were put together, the, uh, the conflicts matrices that were, were established with them, uh, and the ones that we didn't work with that we're working with on Reg BI implementations. We are going back to that, those project uh, documents. And some firms went ahead and adopted some of the best practices that they were, they were moving towards in that, um, in that project. But I do think that one of the things with rollovers that, that we often forget uh, as we're going through and building our compliance programs around surveillance and testing is to monitor the overall activity and patterns of activities that a rep may have. Uh, because a lot of times when you're a supervisor and you're you're looking at one piece of paper and uh, you, you may not get the magnitude of the actual activity that's going on when you see a pattern of activity occurring in a particular rep's book that may stand out from other reps in terms of volumes of transactions. And while there can be very good uh, rational documentation for those, when you look at them at the whole, they may be very different. So keep keep in mind that you may want to tweak some of the surveillance that you're doing uh, as you're looking at this. And certainly you want to amend some of the testing that you're doing uh, in your branch exams or in your departmental testing to look for things. Patrick, you've got some thoughts on One
1: that? thing I wanted to mention about rollovers and... and um don't lose sight of the fact that the DOL is uh, there's at least plenty of things in the press right now about the DOL coming in with some new regulations um, specific to rollovers and those things. And a lot of folks have suggested that's coming or it's maybe coming. Uh, I've seen some things that uh, suggested it may be coming as soon as before the end of the year, which is 60 days from now. Keep that in mind that there may be some specific rollover um, requirements and specific things. They are the regulator for ERISA, and uh, there is a lot of discussion about the fact that they may be coming out with some new DOL regulations specific to rollovers. So keep that in mind, because that may be, uh, obviously, in addition to REG BI.
2: And, Buddy, to your point about supervision and surveillance, um, I think we've come a long, long way since the paper trade letter. I hope a lot of firms have given that up at this point. But I think we also have a long way to go in looking at training our not only our reps but our supervisors as well to see if things are getting through a supervisor. Um, I know that when we look at the software and our monitoring platform, those are the kinds of things that we're we're building out to make it a stronger compliance program um, and really getting down to that trending of behavior as someone reaches a new commission breakpoint, payout schedule hit, you know. Are they increasing their activity the closer they get to that? And those are tough things to watch in, the, in just a regular trade blotter if you're not looking for them specifically.
0: And so there's technology work for sure to be done here. And I think that as that technology work is is getting completed, right, you can't lose sight. There's regulation around that and making sure that your system's work as designed when you're using those risk-based platforms. and. The record keeping that goes along with that testing to make sure that you can prove that you've actually done it is a, you know, a real component of a compliance program that needs to be considered. And we're seeing firms take a couple of different approaches to record keeping. Uh, Some firms are simply taking their existing policies of record keeping and tweaking them a little bit while other organizations are really starting to beef up specifically the way that they prove the way their their new product committees work, uh, the way that they're doing their surveillance and monitoring. And uh, don't be surprised if you get asked the question, you know, how many times does your surveillance lead to a different outcome for your clients? Because it's one thing to know how many rollovers are happening. It's another thing to do something to change the behavior of a rep if you don't feel great about what you're looking at. those are going to be very interesting conversations that happen. We've all rolled out policies and and had the blowback uh, that occurs. Uh, It happens all the time. Um, But in this case, these are core fundamental things that are changing. Uh, and, And while some of it will be done by systems, and some of those system changes need to be done a lot quicker than you're probably thinking. We know that some of the service providers out there that, that do client mailings, for example, uh, they need to know your form CRS drafts in January so they can get their code done and get that in with the statements on June 30th. We're, we're really getting tight on, on time, not just for the podcast, uh, but for the regulations as well.
1: There's 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 long lead times, much longer lead times than most people think and imagine. The um, clearing firms, if you want to get something, you want to get your form CRS in statement stuffers. You need to give them information by early January to meet the uh, July uh, statement stuffer, which seems like a long time. But I understand there's a lot that needs to be done, a lot of programming technology that needs to be included. The other thing that that is maybe even more concerning in terms of a time frame is most firms certainly change their comp plans or announce the comp plans usually in early January or at the end of the year. Um, That's 60 days away. And and clearly your comp plan and how you're paying your registered reps and things like that uh, should be impacted by Reg BI and how this is all going to work. So the deadlines are coming fast and furious, at least in my way of thinking.
0: Yeah, I I think they are. So there's definitely a lot to do to build out your compliance program. There's a lot of things you have to do before you really get down to that tactic, uh, including certainly that conflicts uh, matrix that you need to work on so that you make sure you adequately disclose the risk, the crafting of your form CRS, the amending of your marketing materials, writing policies and procedures to close gaps or just amend what you're doing to document the fact that you're probably going to be doing it in a different way. Maybe the same process, you might even call it the same thing, but it's probably going to have some unique twists and turns. Certainly how your supervisors view things, the systems that they're using to monitor, the record-keeping practices, and then your testing programs. There is an awful lot to do to meet the compliance obligation of reg bi and be able to prove it which is as important as meeting the obligation
1: if you have any thoughts about how much is really involved and how much work needs to be done uh i'd refer you to cifma's release on september 27th that is entitled firm's guide to implementation of regulation best interest and the form crs relationship summary it's only 88 pages so you know, I think there's a little bit to be done here. Uh, it goes through it very thoroughly in terms of the things that you need to consider. But just to give you an idea of what's coming and, and how complicated this is, um, you might want to take a look at
0: that. Yeah, definitely. If you want to see that, SIFMA.org uh, is the website that ho- holds this. It was uh, worked on by Deloitte. Uh, they did a great job, I think, putting this together. Deloitte is... uh Obviously, a competitor to us, but uh, honestly, our approaches are probably pretty similar as we as we move forward. Given the way that that you look at compliance programs, there's classic ways to do this, and I think uh, AirFirm and and their firm are certainly aligned on that. I uh, heard a speaker not long ago that uh,
1: explained that the relationship with competitors is. Don't call them competitors, call them worthy rivals. Mm-hmm. Perhaps we could consider Deloitte a worthy rival.
0: I certainly do. Uh, so, But if you'd like to learn more about how we do things, uh, please visit us on the web at www.oysterllc.com. Uh, you can call us at 804-965-5403. And uh, I hope you'll listen to the other podcasts. Uh, we will continue to do podcasts on a weekly basis. And there'll be, I'm sure, a lot more to come on Reg BI. I want to thank you both for your time today and sharing your wisdom with our clients and listeners. And
1: thank you, appreciate.
0: It. Have a great week.